What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Goldman Sachs' vision of the future, the firm launching a new actively managed ETF, I believe only its second ever, aimed at smaller emerging tech players. Can they rival the success of ARK's Kathy Wood? We speak with one of the managers about the similarities and some key differences. We'll dig into all of that. Plus, a bold call from an influential Wall Street watcher. NYU's Aswath Demodaran says ESG investing is a waste of time and it's going to cost everyone. He'll join us to make his case. And America's best-selling truck for the past four decades has gone electric. The first pre-production lightning Ford F-150s are leaving the factory today. We'll speak with Ford's president of the Americas about pre-sales, range, and competing with Tesla. But first, we begin with today's markets, and that task falls to me today. The Dow down 143 points after giving up all of our early gains. We're down about four-tenths of a percent across all the major averages. The Nasdaq down about a third of one percent. All of this happening after a better than expected retail sales report hitting around 8.30 a.m. That sparked a bit of a lift, a rebound in bond yields that had been declining going back to the uh, weaker CPI reading earlier this week. These declines are also being seen across the commodity space. Copper, silver, gold, all in the red today. Uh, Copper, an interesting one because it's a little bit more of a growth gauge. It's down nearly 3%. And speaking of which, while the dollar continues to advance, by the way, Freeport McMoran, one of the worst performers in the S&P today, and also some other commodity plays down as well. Rio down almost 5%. ArcelorMittal tall down two and a half percent. As I mentioned, wow, look at Freeport. It's now down more than seven percent on the session. So this is definitely going to be something to watch as these come off the boil a little bit. Meanwhile, some of the shares of EV makers are also moving lower. Lordstown and Fisker are both down about three to six percent. Bank of America downgrading the stocks today. Lordstown to underperform. Fisker goes to neutral. And again, we'll have a lot more on Ford's electric vehicle in a moment. Now, a large focus for investors the past few years has been these big cap tech names. Fang has dominated for the past decade. Maybe too dominant. Maybe it's time to shift the focus and look at the names that are the future of tech rather than today's staples. Today, Goldman Sachs launched its new Goldman Sachs Future Tech Leaders Equity ETF. They're focusing on smaller emerging tech companies. If it sounds familiar, it's similar to ARK Investments, which has a number of these forward-looking innovation funds. So what is Goldman buying and how will they differentiate themselves? Joining me now is Brooke Dane. He's a portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and the manager of the fund. Uh, It's good to have you here, Brooke. And let's start with the emphasis, which is really on non-FANG names. Do you guys think this has become too dominant in most people's portfolios? Yeah, Kelly, it's great to be back on the show and especially on such an exciting day for for Goldman Sachs Asset Management with the launch of the the Goldman Sachs Future Tech Leaders Equity ETF, as you mentioned. So yeah, we have this fundamental belief and we've been talking about it for a while now that there's this disconnect between how investors are positioned and where we see you know, the real innovation and, and disruptive tech coming uh, in the world. You know, we think that the twin impacts of, you know, cellular phone ubiquity and the rise of the public cloud has really democratized innovation. And we're seeing a wave of really interesting companies 
both in the mid-cap space of the U.S., but also globally in emerging markets around the world where, you know, you're seeing just tremendous innovation and great companies being born. We think investors are underrepresented of that class of assets. And, and we really think that, you know, this is a really nice complement to existing uh, investor portfolios in a really nice uh, ETF structure and framework. So we couldn't be more excited about the product today. And, you know, it, it's great to have an opportunity to talk about it with you. And I want to mention that this is part of some other thematic ETFs that you do offer. The Innovate Equity ETF uh, is a Goldman offering, the Future Planet Equity ETF, and now this one. Tell me how it'll work, how many names are in the fund, uh, how, you know, what's the turnover? You know, Kathy Woods, Wood does distinguish herself by often posting their daily trades and doing all sorts of transparency things. Tell me about your approach. Sure. So first of all, you know, the, the fund is co-managed by myself, Sung Cho and Nathan Lin. The three of us work very closely together. You know, we are, um, it, this is an actively managed product and, you know, and the team at ARC has done a great job of, of reinvigorating the active world and highlighting that to people. But this is going to be a focused product. We're going to have around 60 names globally. And again, um, you know, this is long-term investments. Our process is very much driven by bottoms-up analysis, really getting to know these management teams um, you know, doing extensive valuation work on our own forecasts and fundamentals to come up with the best 60 names that we think can really benefit investors' portfolios and, and drive kind of structural disruptive change over time. Um, so, you know, we're super happy about it. We've got uh, 15 dedicated tech analysts across the globe looking for this next generation of innovative companies. And we just think that there's a tremendous opportunity for, uh, for investors out there. And it's not just saying Tesla obviously wouldn't qualify as it's well over $100 billion, And that's kind of the centerpiece of Kathy's innovation uh, ETF. We've showed a couple of the names, Brooke, that you guys are fans of here. Names like Palo Alto uh, that people might be pretty familiar with. But also King D Software, Atlassian, Pay, uh, Adyen, I'm sorry, in the payment space, Bill.com. You've got some chip names as well. So what are the main yeah. criteria? I mean, obviously, so much of this has to really just be, you know, bottoms up research. But other than the them being under $100 billion, are there any kind of general growth uh, metrics that you're looking at? Sure. What we're really looking for is companies that we think um, can, you know, can grow at, at very high rates over long periods of time. And, and we look for certain kind of patterns in stocks. So, you know, you mentioned cybersecurity. So I think everybody knows that, that in the cybersecurity space, there's tremendous, you know, tailwinds to the market as the threat environment, you know, rapidly evolves and changes. I saw a stat yesterday that said every 39 seconds, there's a breach, um, you know, on the web out there. So the, the backdrop of the environment is incredibly um, robust and the need for uh, security is, is very strong. But one of the things that really attracts us to this market is there's also a secular shift happening underneath the hood of just being a massive tailwind. So, you know, as companies have moved to cloud computing, it's changed the security architectures that people need. So no longer can you just be uh, protect your enterprise with perimeter defenses and firewalls. You need to protect workloads in the cloud. You need to re-examine how you're doing endpoints with things like Zero Trust and SASE. And, you know, in Palo Alto, we think we found a company that is managed to really do an excellent job of taking their core strength in existing firewalls, but use that and invest in the next generation of security architectures. And they've really pivoted the business over the past two years, mm -hmm. where now they're at scale in these new markets. They're growing very rapidly. And then when you look at their valuation, you know, we talked earlier about how valuation is an important part of our process. When you look at their valuation, they, and compare them to some of the pure best of breed uh, next-gen security softwares, it's just a big disconnect in, in how that stock trades. Sure. We think over time, as this management team proves itself out and continues to show excellent results, that the stock will re-rate and, and trade it at more attractive valuations. So that's kind of an example of the sort of the perfect kind of name for our portfolio. And um, you know, 
Sure. Let me just sort of jump in and ask again for people who are considering uh, all these different products out there. What would be your typical holding period? What is the expense structure and how do you define success? Is outperforming the S&P 500 the bar? Yeah, you know, when we, I'll take that last question first and then I'll work backwards. But when we defined this product and came up with what we thought was the opportunity, we said, look, you know, we think investors are underexposed to this level of, of disruption and innovation that's happening below the fangs. It wouldn't be fair to benchmark ourselves against that universe because that's not really the opportunity set that we're doing. So we actually, you know, from an internal standpoint, we, we look at effectively the global tech ecosystem that's below 100 billion. And that's the benchmark that we manage to and, and we manage against. So we are really looking for that mid cap names. And it's a fully global benchmark that looks uh, across the tech ecosystem and the Internet ecosystem as well. In terms of expense structure, you know, this is very competitively priced with other actively managed ETFs out there in the marketplace. Um, you know, and, and is, is designed to be really a vehicle for helping investors, you know, create wealth and, and drive value over time. I guess a final observation slash question is with this huge interest in stocks, again, in retail trading, participation in the market and in innovation and actively managed funds like you mentioned, um, do you think that you're going to have more to come on this front or would you offer any other observations about the engagement of your client base and the kind of trades and investments they're looking for? Sure. So we've been investing in thematic products for more than 20 years at Goldman Sachs. And in fact, you know, we currently run more than 21 billion of of thematic investments globally. Most of that product and most of the offerings we have have been available to our offshore clients. Um, You know, this and the Future Planet are the first two that we've brought in an ETF framework uh, to the U.S. market. So, you know, we have a long history of investing in thematic products. We're very excited about uh, the opportunities in this space. And I would just say that, you know, um, we're, we think it's a, a big opportunity for investors over time. All right. Brooke, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Kelly, it's been great to be on. Thank you. Brooke Ding with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Again, the ticker of the new uh, ETF is GTEK, G-T-E-K. Meanwhile, just as economists have marked down their Q3 growth estimates, along comes today's retail sales report suggesting that consumer spending might be on better footing than previously thought. That sparked a reversal higher in bond yields, which had dropped after the soft CPI report earlier this week. You can see the 10-year there up around 1.33%. Does the report, does the retail sales data mean the Fed is likely a go for tapering this year? And if so, is that really a headwind for stocks? For more, let's bring in Michael Schumacher. He's head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. And Julia Coronado is founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Good to have you both. Michael, I mean, am I extrapolating too much from this week's bond moves? Maybe a little bit too much. So our take on it, Kelly, is yes, the number today was good. But really, the short-term data, almost impossible to forecast from month to month. I think you've got to look at the longer term picture. And we still think the market is taking its cue from the Fed, in particular tapering. Is that going to happen this year? We think so. And at that point, we do think bond yields go up, but probably not too much until that actually occurs. Yeah. Why is it that they wait until the taper actually happens? Well, the Fed's been a lot of talk and not so much action with respect to tightening policy now. We've heard speech after speech from Fed leader after Fed leader, and Chair Powell in particular has been swatting away these tapering questions. So, I think it's a bit of fool me once, okay, fool me twice, that's on me. So people really want to see that move before they do things like put in big short positions or position for yields to go substantially higher at this point. Interesting. Julia, do you think the report this morning was a game changer? No, not a game changer, but I think it does demonstrate resilience. Uh, I think that, you know, we have seen the Delta variant weaken the momentum in the recovery, but there's no real risk that it's going to derail it. So I do think that the Fed is on track for tapering uh, later this year. We are expecting it at the November meeting. 
And we expect next week that will serve as what they call advance notice. They will tell us that they're, you know, if progress continues to be made as expected, uh, that they will uh, be on track for tapering in coming meetings. Um, so I think right now for the market, it's more about how long is the tapering? What is the shape? of the tapering uh, and, you know, what is the rhetoric in terms of how does Chair Powell uh, tie together the tapering and prospective future rate hikes. And we saw him in Jackson Hole, he was plenty dovish. And I think to Michael's point, he wants this to be a non-event. He wants us to get so tired of <laughs> anticipating it that once it finally comes, it's like, okay, finally it's here. Uh, and I will just add one final point, which is, Remember that they're going to be tapering their bond purchases as issuance is also tapering. So the net tightening isn't as significant uh, as it would be otherwise. Julia, what would you say about the decline in jobless claims to almost more normal levels lately and the sort of impact of Delta on the economy from the high frequency data? Does it look like the worst of that impact has passed? Um, I would say not yet. The, the jobless claims number actually is a good illustration. We saw jobless claims continue to decline. That's good news. But the August employment report showed us that the pace of hiring might also be slowing as well. So hiring is the net impact. The payrolls is the net impact of hiring versus firing. The pace of firing is slowing, but likely with reopening largely behind us, so is the pace of, of rehiring. So what is the net impact? August was a pretty significant disappointment. As Michael said, huge noise in this data, very difficult to forecast. I do expect hiring to stay pretty robust. But unlike inflation, which is surprised pretty systematically to the upside, the labor market's been a lot more mixed. And, you know, the shape of this labor market recovery is still far from clear. Uh, there's just tremendous, tremendous friction in this economy still. And the yeah. Delta variant is just another source of that friction. Michael, what would you add about, you know, I know I ask you about this every time, but I'm going to until yields finally go up. You know, at 1.3 percent, is that an accurate depiction of the state of the economy? You know, yes, like Julia is saying, the labor market data is mixed here. But, you know, thinking about what's going on in credit markets, which are just unbelievably strong and, you know, just can't figure out whether they're taking advantage of sort of artificially low rates or whether this is all sort of an accurate and understandable encapsulation of the U.S. economy. I wish it were, but we think it just isn't, Kelly. And it's interesting if you take a look at bond yields compared to pick your favorite economic data indicator, GDP, inflation, unemployment, you name it. There's been almost no connection really for a very long time. And I would date that back to the financial crisis. This is true in the U.S. and other countries. Wow. We think the main reason is central banks are so involved. So I'd say it's not a good barometer at this point. What it does reflect is this massive wall of cash out there. People have so much cash to put to work. They've been flowing into market after market, whether it's equities rocking along, maybe not the last couple of weeks, but generally up big, bond yields down to super low levels, you name it, that cash has to be deployed. That's why yields are low. It's fascinating. Again, they seem to move directionally with kind of this, the moves of the economy, but the level over time uh, maybe is more liquidity driven. Guys, thank you. We'll leave it there for now, but we'll ask again in a couple weeks time. Michael Schumacher and Julia Coronado joining me today. Coming up, Ford's first F-150 Lightning prototypes are rolling off the factory floor today. Up next, we'll speak with a top executive about range, pricing, its new investments in Michigan and how they're handling the chip shortage. Plus, the ESG movement is gaining huge momentum as investors 
investors seek out socially responsible stocks. But NYU's Dean Evaluation warns it'll do more harm than good for society. Oswat Demoterin joins us to make his case coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Ford unveiled its all-electric F-150 Lightning back in May. And now the first models are rolling off the factory line today for road testing. The pickup isn't on sale till next spring, but there are already 150,000 pre-orders. And Ford is investing an additional $250 million on top of the nearly $8 billion it's already put into its Michigan facilities and adding 450 more manufacturing jobs across the state to keep up with demand. Joining me now from Ford's Rouge Electric Vehicle Center in Dearborn, Michigan, is Kumar Galhatra. He's Ford president of the Americas and International Markets Group. Kumar, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this vehicle uh, is perhaps the most significant electric vehicle yet to the U.S. market because I can't imagine you're aiming to compete directly with Tesla's Cybertruck. You probably see those customers as very different. Um, theirs probably appealing more to general fans of electric vehicles, and yours may be appealing to fans of the F-150 who are on the fence about going electric. Do you think this car will win them over? <laughs> uh, well, it is, you know, it is one of our most iconic products. It's one of the most iconic trucks, period. Uh, and uh, our initial research, first of all, with the customers showed that they were really looking forward to a vehicle like this. Uh, then, as you said, we introduced the vehicle about exactly a year ago uh, and started taking orders. And the orders have never stopped rolling in. Uh, we now have over 150,000 orders, uh, and uh, we are trying to break all the constraints as quickly as possible so that we can we can satisfy this demand. So demand, so really exciting time. So tell us, broadly speaking, exactly how it'll work to own one of these vehicles. Um, you know, the normally pickup trucks have a pretty poor gas uh, range. You know, we're talking 10 to 15, maybe these days upwards of 20 miles per gallon. How far can uh, the base and then sort of the top-level trucks go on a single charge? How long does it take them to charge? And is it true you think that the, the truck battery itself can be a backup battery for powering the home? Yeah, so um, the, the trucks will go over 300 miles uh, for, for one charge. Uh, and w one of the misconceptions about this is, uh, about charging electric vehicles, is that it takes a long time. But the way to think about it is, if you come home, park the car in your garage or the truck in your garage, plug it in, 
every morning you leave with a full tank uh, or a virtual tank, a, full, a fully charged battery every morning. If you are going in a longer trip, on a longer trip, we have one of the most extensive networks of charging stations in the country, you can stop and charge to about 80% in about 20 minutes. So the range anxiety really is not going to be a, a very significant issues, issue for a vehicle like this. There's also, I guess, questions about how strong you know, an electric uh, truck like this can be in terms of its cargo and pulling capacity. Um, you know, the, again, to bring up the Cybertruck, it is a heavier car. It's steel, I believe your frame is aluminum, uh, but the, the, by the specs seem somewhat comparable in terms of what they can do. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all. And also just speak about sort of how big you think the market for the electric F-150 can be. And if that means we should expect then the market for the traditional F-150 to obviously decline over time. Yeah, so uh, first of all, in terms of pulling power and, uh, and torque, uh, the electric motors are fantastic at providing not only great torque, but an instantaneous torque. So the, not only is there a lot of torque available, which is very important to our customers, uh, that torque is instantaneous, so it is a lot of fun to drive as well. Uh, one feature that our customers, and especially the very utilitarian customers in the truck segment, absolutely love is what we lovingly call the frunk, which is the the front trunk, basically, uh, gives you a lot of room to, to store stuff, uh, your tools uh, for, the, for the working customers or two or three golf bags for customers who are using it for, for more personal use. So the, the truck will be built for tough and it will be uh, incredibly capable. And I, we did a, a, a video, I think it's still available on YouTube, where we demonstrated when we launched it last year, uh, when we first revealed it last year, was showing that this uh, this truck has so much torque and it can pull a freight train. Uh, mm -hmm. and it, so therefore, it makes it a very, very capable vehicle. Uh, finally, uh, what do you think in terms of the price point, especially with what's happening in the supply chain? Do you think you can keep the entry-level model under $40,000? Obviously, uh, electric vehicle subsidies would help on that front. And then how quickly should people expect they can take delivery? Uh, absolutely. So the starting price is going to be under $40,000. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the orders have been rolling in. We have over 150,000 uh, orders, uh, uh, reservations already. Uh, most of these reservations will convert to orders. Uh, and uh, the reserva reservations are coming from a lot of customers who haven't uh, considered a Ford in the past, so a lot of conquest customers for us. In terms of delivery, spring of next year. Spring of next year, full production starts uh, happening and uh, customers can start taking, taking delivery of this, uh, this wonderful, uh, iconic uh, electric vehicle. Yeah, it's right there behind you. Uh, for those listening on the radio, Kumar, just a quick final question. What kind of uh, driver assistance technologies and capabilities will this truck have? So it will have uh, the, the, all the driver assistance technologies like lane keeping and, and uh, 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 blind spot detection that we do today. Uh, but we're really proud to say, thanks for asking that question, we are going to be launching, we are going to be uh, equipping these vehicles with Blue Cruise, uh, which is our uh, uh, hands-free driving. As soon as you keep your eyes on the road, uh, you can take the hands off the wheel. Uh, and uh, in certain geofenced areas like major highways of the country, uh, the truck will uh, not only uh, uh, 
uh, accelerate and brake uh, like our present uh, uh, cruise control does, but will also steer itself. It's really exciting technology we're launching right now. It'll be very interesting, 2022, to see the F-150 Lightning, uh, maybe the Cybertruck as well. It's a, a point of no return, I think, for, for the U.S. Uh, car industry. Kumar, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Kumar Galhatra of Ford. Coming up, shares of Chipotle are trying to avoid back-to-back weekly losses for the first time since May. They get a boost today thanks to an upgrade and a new street high price target. We're going to take a look at this top food tech play coming up. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're down about the same amount we were up this morning. Dow's down 133. The high was plus 129, but things have moved negative during the day after that stronger retail sales report. Bond yields firming up a little bit as well. Here are some of the movers this hour. Semiconductors are in the red on concerns about that chip shortage creeping back into play. Uh, the VanX uh, Semiconductor ETF down about a third of 1%, but names like Xilinx down 1.6, NVIDIA down about 1.3%, and they're snapping a five-day win streak. Speaking of chips, casinos still struggling on concerns over regulation in Macau and possible travel restrictions. Ah, chips, I see what they did there. Uh, Wynn, Las Vegas, Sands, and Melco are all lower today. Wynn down another 3%. J.P. Morgan downgrading these names to neutral, saying they don't like the uncertainty around Macau and China policy. For more on that call, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's the latest. Convicted murderer and former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has pleaded not guilty in a separate federal civil rights case. That case involves a 2017 encounter with a black teenager. During the incident, Chauvin reportedly knelt on the boy's neck using a similar restraint used on George Floyd. This is the second federal arraignment for Derek Chauvin this week. For more on the charges that he's facing, tune in tonight to the news with Shepard Smith. North Korea says that it has successfully launched ballistic missiles from a train for the first time. An official said that the rail system is an efficient counterstrike measure. The Madoff Victim Fund has distributed another $568 million to those impacted by Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. In total, $3.7 billion have been distributed to nearly 40,000 victims. And Mass Mutual will pay $4 million and overhaul its social media policies as part of a settlement with Massachusetts regulators. This is over posts made by its employee, Keith Gill, known online as Warren Kitty during the meme stock craze earlier this year. Who could forget that, Kelly? Wait, so his, his employer got in trouble, Rahel? Apparently. Wow. Interesting wrinkle in all of this. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Coming up, ESG is one of the hottest investment trends, but does it actually achieve environmental, social, and governance goals? In a recent blog post, Dean Evaluation Oswap Demodoran argues it does not. And in fact, he says it makes the world worse off. He joins me to explain next. Welcome back, everybody. ESG is still one of the hottest investment trends lately. According to Morningstar Research, inflows into ESG funds were more than $17 billion last quarter. That's a small step down from the record-setting $21.5 billion from the first quarter. 
But is the ESG movement having a real impact and the right kind of impact? My next guest says ESG could be a waste of money. It could actually do more harm than good for society. Joining me now is Aswath Demoter, and he is professor at NYU Stern School of Business. It is great to have you here. Everybody's been talking about this. And the, uh, the good thing about having you on today is that in the 24 hours since this was posted, maybe you've had a, a, another chance to hear some of the biggest criticisms, Aswath. Has your mind been changed about... Uh, you know, the, your declarations here? Or, or what did you think were some of the, the, the best points people make about why you might be off base on this? It's amazing. I, I've got actually very little pushback. In fact, I've heard from quite a few people in the ESG movement that um, they feel the same way. They just can't say it because mm-hmm. they're in the business of making money of ESG. We've actually had a, a, a guest who I think was formerly with BlackRock and is now out on his own and has been um, vocal about his own concerns. So let's run through them. I think it's one thing to say it's not effective, and it's another thing to say it does more harm than good. Why are you so mm-hmm. feel so strongly that this does more harm than good? Let's start at the very top. I mean, if you ask me to define ESG or ask anybody to define ESG, it's very difficult to pin down. Your definition of goodness and my definition of goodness are going to be very different. That's why when services attach ESC scores, there's actually very little correlation across services on which companies they think are best and worst. So already you have a problem. You can't even agree on what companies are good companies and which ones are bad companies. Second, if you're going to tell me it increases value, you need to show me something that backs it up. Right now, all I'm hearing is uh, seeing is a lot of hand-waving about how ESG is good for value. But if you're selling ESG to me as an investor telling me I can make higher returns. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense because if I add a constraint to my investment policy, no matter what it is, you can't tell me that adding a constraint gives me a better outcome than not having that constraint. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to be good, I'm okay with that. But don't ask me to give you higher returns while trying to be good. I mean, that I think is the problem of the ESG movement. They want to promise calories, I mean, uh, basically cookies and cake for everybody, calories for no one. Stop lying. At least be open and honest that being good will cost us, inconvenience us. And as long as you hide from that truth, I think what you're going to get are people, they're basically being co-opted by companies and investment funds offering to do good for them. Right. When, in fact, they should be and making these decisions this themselves. A, and this is a huge concern because if there is an option, for example, in a 401k to choose an ESG fund, a lot of people will do that. So there needs to be very, very clear about what they're giving up, what they're choosing and so on. But still, underperformance is not the real issue here because plenty of people would probably say, I'll take the underperformance because I'm changing society. So if we just said putting performance aside does ESG achieve its goals? And I know I'm asking you a question that by definition is impossible to answer because it has to depend on whether that goal is environmental or social or governance related. And they're often in conflict with one another. But on that premise, Aswath, so, you know, I'm sure your NYU students, if you if they say we want, you know, clean energy or whatever it is, then how should they achieve that goal? Why doesn't ESG at least help? I would say start with the I. You can't generalize to other people what you think is good. So start with your own decisions on what you consume. Basically, your choices ultimately drive what companies do. So I think goodness starts at home. 
the, the danger I see with ESG is by, in a sense, um, passing on this respond, responsibility to companies and investment funds. My fear is people are going to go back to living their life saying, hey, I did my job. Look, my 401k is in an ESG fund, so I can drive my SUV, take as many flights as I want and keep my house at 60 degrees because my job has already been done. I think we're taking the responsibility off the people who should be making the decisions and letting companies stand in for us. And I don't think that that outcome is going to be something that you and I want, which is good for society. It's a really perceptive point, And obviously, it's always hardest um, sort of start at home. But let me ask you one more question then about those who say, OK, I still want to make corporate America a better steward of whatever you'd want to say, the planet, of shareholder capital through governance, of my political priorities through social, whatever that is, then what is the investment advice you would give them? I would tell them that, that, that I share their end game, which is I want companies to be better behaved as well. But if you want companies to be better behaved, make it in their best financial interest to be well behaved. Isn't that what you know ESG that does, though? Yeah. Not really. Right. Because in a sense, what does it do right now? It's checkboxes. Basically, companies can get a higher ESG score if they meet the checkboxes that MSCI or sustainability put up in front of them. Ultimately, if you want ESG to have an impact on companies, if you want companies to behave well, we need less talk about being good and more actions that reflect goodness. I think right now we're accepting a cosmetic version of goodness instead of pushing for real change in companies. And that real change will come about only when our actions drive companies to behave better. Very, very interesting. Aswath, as I've mentioned, really have kicked off a huge discussion and debate here. Uh, thanks for joining me. It's really good to have you. It was fun. Thank Aswath you. Demodorin from NYU Stern School of Business. Well, the king of beers recapturing, speaking of consumer choices, uh, the king of beers is recapturing its throne. Beyond Meat doesn't run on Dunkin'. And is Chipotle the best food stock ever? It's all coming up in today's Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire, and it's a food and beverage edition today. Here to break down the headlines, Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor, our own Kate Rogers and Michael Santoli. It's great to have you guys all on board. And we're going to begin with Chipotle getting two new street high price targets in just the past week. Piper upping its target to 2600 a share today, just days after Cowan hiked theirs to 2250 On top of that, the stock hit a record high for 12 straight trading sessions this summer and has just one analyst sell rating. Some argue it's pricey. Its P.E. ratio is one of the highest among peers. Well, it may be high, but it's nowhere near its own all-time highs. At the beginning of the pandemic, its full-year forward P.E. was all the way down to 32. It went back above 116 by last May. It's since come down to settle in around 74. Michael, what are your thoughts on beyond the stock's performance? Uh, well, it shows you that analysts do have to stretch to find a rationale to, to justify much further upside from here because it's been such a well-embraced investment thesis. Uh, the company's been performing so well. I would just kind of throw away the, the huge multiple on super depressed earnings and say it is pretty rich. And one of the things that struck me was that Piper, their target price of 2600 implies it getting up to 
47 times cash flow. That's, you know, enterprise value to, uh, to cash flow. It's never really traded up there. You really can't find that many companies that trade there. But part of the premise is they can double domestic store counts. And there's not that many companies that profitable with that much kind of consumer loyalty that can double their footprint in that period of time. And I think that's why, you know, the bulls hold the day for the moment. And maybe, Kate, that's why it still commands a higher valuation than a similar food tech success like Domino's. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. And what Mike just mentioned about consumer loyalty is something that stuck out to me last quarter with this name. Uh, the CEO basically said they've recouped about 70% of in-store dining sales from 2019, but they're hanging on to 80% of their digital gains. They've also been able to raise prices without really turning consumers off. So you can understand, obviously, it's expensive, all of that, but there's a lot of growth there and people are really sticking with the brand. The marketing tends to work. Uh, and once they get you in their system digitally, it's really kind of hard to lose the customer from there. Delano, does it PE turn you off or would this be a long-term hold for you? I think investors and myself would be a long-term hold. I like what the theme hit that's been set on across the panel. The digital native, the way they went digital native in 2020 struck me a lot. I, there was a Chipotle around the corner. It was kind of like an assembly line. They're passing out the brown bag and there was you know customers going in and out all the time over there. And I think the high valuation does have to set you back if you're a short-term holder. It's just something that you want to look for a better price point. But I think at this point, you know, the performance against the other competitors, when you look at young brands, you look at McDonald's, you just, you just can't argue with the performance of the stock over this over this time all right we move along leave chipotle and uh you know hit it up on the weekend or whatever meanwhile deutsche bank is giving ab inbev the maker of budweiser a boost today writing that it's rethroning the king of beers it says european shares are cheap the analyst notes the underlying concerns like the seltzer slowdown and beer generally losing share to spirits but take a look at the one-month performance of some of the beverage names constellation brands which has wine and spirits is the only one eking out a gain, Boston Beer, of course, the biggest laggard after it pulled guidance on decelerating growth and hard seltzer. Kate, where do you, where is the, so the, it looks like the analyst community is kind of looking for the next growth leader in the beverage space. And who knows what it'll be, Kelly? I mean, we talked about this last time I was on Rapid Fire about how many hard seltzer names there are. Uh, this note does uh, make note of the fact that the decline in hard seltzer sales could be a boost for beer sales, which had been tapering off. So people buying less hard seltzer potentially uh, could be better for beer sales. But who knows what it'll be? I know uh, Topo Chico apparently has its hard seltzer uh, going across the country soon. That could be another catalyst to get people like myself who love Topo Chico potentially interested in that. But I have no idea what comes next. Delano, like we said, this has been a difficult space to invest in lately. Anywhere yeah. you'd uh, want to be buying up some of these names? You're right, Kelly. This has actually been a very difficult space. You're talking about the slowdown in, in its seltzers. And I think you really want to look at some areas of the stocks that you think might be undervalued. I know Boston Beer Company has had a litany of issues. Uh, you're looking at legal issues, looking at different things as far as uh, management pulling back guidance. But, you know, this is a company that introduced um, a brand and seltzer brand in 2016 and truly and, and it had explosive growth at that point. And that's since come back. And if you're an investor that's been investing for all, do you look at opportunities where you can buy on the dip? That might be something to consider if they clear up some of these issues. All right. Let's move along and talk about Beyond Meat. It doesn't run on Dunkin'. And a new note, Piper Sandler says the discontinuation of sales of the Beyond Sausage Sandwich will take a big chunk out of Beyond's food service sales. Piper saying retail sales fell 10% in the third quarter, but Beyond's partnership with Pepsi to develop, to develop plant-based protein snacks and beverages could remain a wild card in a positive sense. Mike, what do you say about Beyond Meat? Well, it's obviously lost some of uh, that buzz around it being a leader in this huge emerging area. And I think it's a little bit, if you dial out 
uh, a cautionary story about kind of racing for the one stock that seems a pure play on what everybody acknowledges is going to be a big trend toward plant-based meats. It was a $10 billion market cap at the peak a couple of years ago, and it was because it was feeding off of just these uh, partnership and distribution uh, announcements. It wasn't really about the numbers, and they already have a large starting market share in this alternative meat category. So can it go up or is it going to go down from here? So it's it's obviously kind of had its reckoning to some degree. It's been cut in half since the peak. Kate? Well, it's been kind of a push-pull throughout the pandemic for Beyond because its retail sales in the U.S. are about three-quarters of its U.S. sales. That's the food uh, food stores, right? People were pantry-loading throughout the pandemic. That gave them a nice boost last year. That kind of fell off last quarter. Uh, food service in restaurants did pick up, which was good news. But now with Delta, that could potentially pull back. The note does mention, though, the wild card, of course, is the deal with Pepsi. Want these alt-meat products and snacks. Snacks in particular, Kelly, will be interesting to me. Um, they call it a wild card. Not quite sure what comes of that, but... Uh, uh, we did hear from the Pepsi CEO that that should come sometime in 2022. So I think uh, myself, a lot of analysts will certainly be looking forward to, to kind of see what comes out of that. But this quarter will be an interesting one because the pandemic continues to impact its business on both ends. Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of, Delana, what are the meat snacks? I guess jerky, maybe like some pork skins. Uh, you think Impossible might be winning some share? Kelly, I, I eat real meat. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think <laughs> if you're looking at this situation, I th- it's a bumpy ride uh, for Impossible. I think uh, for Beyond, and I think as you mentioned, Impossible is gaining share. If you're looking at these companies, especially for Beyond, you're looking at growth. And if there's management saying growth is slowing, this is a stock that I'd probably stay out of as of now. All right. Finally, today, let's talk about this call on DoorDash. Despite the reopening, delivery is set to boom, according to Bank of America. Its analysts are upgrading Dash to buy from neutral, citing a robust five-year growth opportunity as delivery expands beyond restaurants to include grocery, convenience, and alcohol. B of A also noting that according to its own data, restaurant spending is holding up surprisingly well, which should benefit Dash and its peers. Kate, you buy this? I mean, so these uh, commi- uh, these fee caps in, in certain big cities like New York City and San Francisco obviously stand to impact. Uh, but this could be an area of growth for Dash. I didn't realize we were all this lazy in terms of getting convenience items delivered, alcohol delivered. I know a lot of people relied heavily on it for food service delivery during the pandemic. I kind of got hooked into that and I haven't quite stepped back yet. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. I didn't realize that that many people were, you know, that bought into this as a service beyond just food delivery, Kelly, right. and, and other items like that was surprising to me. Do they, Delano, would you rather have the shares if they become the kind of all-in-one delivery app or if they stick with what they do best? 100%. I think if you're looking at the just the food delivery, that's a, such a competitive space. But Dash has been clearly the market leader. They're up about over 60%, around 60% year-to-date, while you're looking at Uber and Grub um, down over 20% year-to-date. And the market clearly likes what Dash is doing as far as delivery expansion, as far as making as far as looking at becoming a super app and delivering all items. Um, and I think that's the big clear winner here. And I think if you're a holder, you probably want to stay long and because it's clear the market is looking at Dash to kind of lead in this category. Mike, I wouldn't have seen that coming, that Uber Uber and Lyft would struggle so much as businesses, but yeah. but food delivery with all of the fees people are always explaining, uh, complaining about, and the litig- uh, the issues that Kate mentioned regulatory wise, that it would still be outperforming. Yeah, I mean, nobody ever kind of went broke uh, overestimating the laziness of the American consumer. I guess that's part of it, but also we had this massive technological shift that's enabled uh, all this stuff. We'll say if you look inside the, this this uh, analyst report on DoorDash, seventeen cents in adjusted EBITDA per order. That's the business model right now. That's what they take in adjusted cash flow per order. So it's a tough way to make a living. It's years before it seems like it's really spinning out 
profits. And that's if you assume this total addressable market gets and stays really large. So, you know, you lay your bets. It's sort of a three or four <laughs> company race in this area to deliver absolutely everything to you. Maybe that can be some comfort the next time people get that order bill is, you know what, they're only getting 17 cents of adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Mike Santoli, Kate Rogers and Delano Sapporo for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, a retirement account loophole that's been exploited by high earners could soon be closing. We have those details next. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Peter Thiel creating a major stir after ProPublica revealed he had a $5 billion Roth IRA. It's causing Congress to propose contribution caps. Robert Frank is here with a look at the effort to close the loophole that allowed this to happen. Robert. Well, Kelly, this is a retirement tool for the middle class that has also become a popular tax shelter for the ultra wealthy. Now, the House Democrats are taking action. The number of IRAs with more than $5 million has tripled over the past decade to over 28,000. Those with accounts over 25 million have over $53 billion in assets. The new house plan effectively bars the wealthy from creating these mega IRAs. First of all, it would effectively limit IRA accounts to $10 million. Once the balance reaches 10 million, taxpayers can no longer make contributions. If the balance of your IRA, Roth IRA, and defined benefit plan totals more than $10 million, you have to distribute half of the amount over $10 million. And finally, the rules close the creation of so-called mega Roth IRAs. To get around the current income limits, wealthy savers are contributing to IRAs and then converting them into Roth IRAs, which, of course, are more tax effective. Now, the new rules prevent those making more than $400,000 a year from these conversions. The House also seeking to limit the kinds of investment you can put into IRAs, ProPublica revealed that billionaire Peter Thiel placed early private shares of PayPal into his Roth IRA, which, as you mentioned, grew into the largest ever at $5 billion. Kelly. Robert, the, the one with the bigger impact, the conversion, that's more limited. You can only do, I think, $6,500 a year, right? That's right. The, right now, the uh, limit is between six dollars and $7,000. And then there are income limits. There are also age limits. But the wealthy, as always, figure out ways around these. And hopefully this will at least close the most obvious loophole, which, again, was this conversion where you pay the taxes upon the conversion. But when you withdrew that money, no matter how large it became, there would be no tax. Right. Right. The whole premise of the Roth. Robert, we appreciate it. As always, thank you. Our Robert Frank with the very latest. Up next, this company is up more than 40% on the year. It's our mystery chart today. But on the heels of announcing a revamp and its investor day, shares are on pace to break their longest monthly winning streak since 2019. The name after this break. Welcome back, everybody. Cisco, that is our mystery chart today. The shares are slightly lower, down by about half of a percent, despite some votes of confidence from the street after its investor day. Credit Suisse upgrading the stock to outperform. J.P. Morgan adding it to its focus list and up the price target by three bucks a share to 70. Cisco's at 57 today. Both firms are noting Cisco's presentation offering insights into the next stage of its revamp from being what J.P.M. called levered to mature markets with limited growth to one with recurring revenue streams from the likes of software maintenance contracts and subscriptions. 
Cisco shares are up more than 40 percent over the past year. So it remains to be seen if investors will appreciate the old tech names transformation in the long term. And they're not the only ones. Cisco, Oracle, Dell, all experiencing similar sized year to date gains. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.